So you've experienced it. I know you have. You've got a coworker who doesn't like another coworker, but rather than address the issue with that coworker, this coworker just comes to you and wants to talk and complain about the other coworker. Or your mother-in-law is not a big fan of you. But rather than tell you how she feels about you or articulate the issue she has with you, she just goes to your husband and fills his ear and makes him come and tell you about it. Or maybe your neighborhood is one of those neighborhoods where the HOA feels a little bit too empowered. And you've got a neighbor who doesn't like the way you mow your lawn, but rather than come and tell you about it, they complain to another neighbor who then has to come and tell you what this neighbor thinks about your lawn and your hedges. Or perhaps you grew up in a home where mom and dad would fight. But then after mom and dad would fight, mom would come to you, and you're just a child, but she would come to you and she would confide in you all the feelings of frustration, anger, or whatever it was that she had about your dad. Stuff that she really should say to him, she was saying to you. We've all experienced it when there's a relationship between two people, a conflict between two people that really should just be between those two people, and then one of those two people decides to bring in a third person, and it makes it awkward and difficult to say the very least. Today we're continuing a teaching series that we started last week called Me, You, and My Anxiety. And what we're talking about in this series is really just recognizing the reality of our collective anxiety. It's a bit of an epidemic in our world these days. And recognizing that, that a lot of our anxiety comes from some of the relationships that we love and cherish the most. And we're talking about this because we want to learn how to manage it all a little bit better, care for ourselves a little better, and love each other a little better. And we're looking at it all through the lens of the life and the work, of course, of Jesus, who is not just the model of relational health for us, but he also gives us a freedom through his work on the cross to pursue healthy relationships with each other. Last week, Cody kicked things off by talking about a dynamic that, that therapists might call being in a double bind. Someone that you have a relationship with puts you in a situation where there are no good choices. You feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. If I, if I choose to go this direction, I'm going to hurt them. If I choose to go that direction, I'm going to hurt that other person. If I choose to go this direction, I'm going to hurt myself. You feel stuck. Today, we're going to dive into a little bit of geometry, you could say. We're going to talk about triangles. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about something labeled triangulation. And that's when there's a relationship between two people, a conflict between two people that should just involve those two people, but instead, because they don't want to deal with the issue directly, they pull in another person. And this is a cause for a lot of anxiety in relationships. I mean, if you're the one who's being triangulated against, like there are two people who are coming at you when it should just be one other person, you easily feel ganged up on. Or if you're the one being roped in to go against another person, you very easily feel manipulated. And so the whole thing very quickly becomes a breeding ground for frustration and misunderstanding and all kinds 
of dysfunction. Now, what's interesting to me is that the Bible, the Bible tells us the story of a whole lot of dysfunctional relationships. And many of those dysfunctional relationships have, have some triangulation at the center of them. For example, in King David's life, there's a number of anxiety-ridden, triangulated relationships. In the life of Abraham, also in the Old Testament, like every relationship he has is supremely dysfunctional and there's some weird triangulation going on in the middle of it. But it goes even further. You could make the case that the first sin, Adam and Eve, eating the fruit they shouldn't, listening to the serpent, disobeying God, that whole thing, that that's the result of some dysfunctional triangulation. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. It's just them and God. That's the relationship. Adam and Eve's household and God. And it's a perfect relationship between the two of them. But then in comes this third character. And the third character only addresses Adam and Eve. Satan, the serpent, comes in and he starts to talk about the one who's not there. He starts to talk about God. And he gets them to question all this stuff about him. Did he really say that he has your best interest at heart? Did he really mean don't eat the fruit? And he's just planting all these seeds about the other person who happens to be God in their heart and mind. But rather than go to God directly with their fresh doubts and say, hey, this snake over here is talking, which is weird, by the way, but he's also saying a whole bunch of stuff about you that's got me thinking. God, I'd like to address these things directly with you, but rather than do that, they just let this voice into their ear until so much doubt has been planted that they, they step into disbelief and ultimately rebellion against God. You can make the case that the whole problem of sin begins with some triangulation. Steve Cuss is a well-known pastor and therapist, and he writes a bit about anxiety, in particular from a relationship perspective. And he talks about the dynamic of triangulation from a kind of a spiritual perspective and also a pathological perspective. And one of the th points that he makes is that whenever these dysfunctional triangles emerge, they always have the same foundation and the same fuel. The same foundation and the same fuel. The foundation of triangulation is powerlessness. I have an issue with you, but for whatever reason, I don't feel like I have the ability to go deal with it with you. I'm powerless. And so what I do is I pull in somebody else and I say things that should be said to you to them, or I try to get you to go and deal with them. The foundation is powerlessness, but the fuel, the fuel of it is hidden knowledge. Stuff that I should say to you or you should say to me, but we don't say it to each other. Instead, I go to this person and all the stuff I should say to you, I say to them. And again, you can see how it becomes a breeding ground for all kinds of dysfunction. What we see in one of today's gospel readings is Jesus being pulled in, or at least that's the attempt, being pulled into some of this dysfunction. Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha, and there's a spat going on between Mary and Martha, and Martha's, Martha's ask of Jesus, her desire of Jesus is that he would triangulate in that relationship with her against Mary. 
Let's look again at what happens. It's really fascinating. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 40. It says, Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. When we, when we hear this story in church, we often, and rightly so, uh, we, we are often told that, that the point of this story is to marvel at Mary's attention to Jesus. Her focus is in the right place. The Savior of the world has come to your house. It's not the time to tidy up. It's the time to pay attention to him. And then we learn a lesson from Martha in that, you know, Martha thinks activity equals spirituality. Martha thinks that doing things for Jesus is the same as paying attention to Jesus, as leaning upon him and loving him. And Jesus makes it clear, no, no, Mary's actually on the right track. Spirituality is not activity. Spirituality is focus on me. But, but the attention for today on this interaction really should be on what Jesus says to Martha. So Jesus steps into their house and Martha, who, who clearly is like the firstborn of all the siblings, she's taking care of everything and she's really frustrated that, that Mary, who might be the youngest of the family, is not picking up her weight, is not doing anything, is just enjoying Jesus. And you get the sense that, that Martha's internal dialogue is like, well, it must be nice to be Mary, to not worry about whether or not the Savior of the world has food, to not worry about whether or not our house is tidied up for the Lord. It must be nice to be Mary. So, so Martha has a bit of a martyr syndrome going on. So Martha has an issue with who? With Mary. Martha is mad at her sister. Does Martha say a thing that we know of to her sister about it? No. Jesus steps in and she's like, Jesus will fix this. She says, Jesus, don't you feel bad that I have to do all the work in this house? I think you should say something to my sister, implication, about how lazy she is. And what I appreciate about Jesus is that Jesus essentially says, no, I'm not doing that. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not getting caught up in that dynamic, not at all. In fact, what Jesus does is Jesus, Jesus confronts directly the real issue he looks at Martha and he says, Martha, you are anxious. You are anxious about doing and being active because you think that your, your identity or at the very least your spirituality or your love for me is best demonstrated in all of this activity. The real issue is not Mary. The real issue is you. So Jesus says, no, I'm not going to get triangulated into this. This is between the two of you. And he's bold enough to say, the real issue is you. I appreciate two things about this encounter. Jesus is, in this moment, a model of relational health for us. He sees that there's this temptation to get brought into the middle of this dysfunction between these two sisters, and he just refuses. He's like, no, not going to go there. I'm going to be a guest in your home, but I'm not going to be brought in to your dysfunctional drama, which should be instructive for us. Like, Jesus is good, and he's God, and he's perfect, and yet he feels free to be like, yeah, I know you might take this the wrong way. You might be offended by it, but I'm not going to go there with you. Jesus says no to drama, and is still good, and is still God, and, and I think that... 
that is an invitation, an opportunity for you to do the same thing. Like you don't have to get drawn into everybody else's dysfunction and drama. And if you say, no, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna get drawn into your stuff. It doesn't make you a bad person. Jesus did it. Be like, I got a chapter and a verse. I'm not going there. I appreciate this because Jesus is a model of relational health. He draws a boundary. But I also appreciate it because Jesus demonstrates for us and he reminds us of how God deals with each and every one of us. He is is lovingly but brutally direct with Martha. I'm not getting involved in this in the way in which you want me to. And I'm going to state to you what I know to be the real issue. You have a problem with your sister. God is always direct with us. And, and that's good news. I mean, what kind of God would we have if he went whispering to other people information about us and then had them come and tell us? Now, certainly God works through means. He works through his prophets and his preachers and his teachers. God the Father works through his son. But he doesn't talk about us. He talks to us. God the Father saw your problem with sin and you being stuck in death. He saw all of it before you were even born. He saw your situation, all your proclivities and all of your hang-ups. And he said, I'm going to deal with it directly. I'm going to send my son into this world to, to walk your road, to live your difficult life, and to do it perfectly as a replacement for your imperfection. And then his son goes directly to a cross where he is punished directly for the sins of the world. Then he goes into a tomb and he rises out of it. And, and it's also that he can directly confront the core issue of humanity, which is our sinfulness and being stuck in death and us being disconnected from God. And he attacks it head on. But then, but then, as if that isn't enough, he speaks to us directly through his word. And that is how God speaks to us, through his word. I mean, through his word, whether it's preached or whether it's written or whether it's shared, with you, shared to you by another friend who follows Jesus, that word, when it comes to you, it speaks directly to you words of conviction that point out your sin and your struggle at various moments, at various times, in various ways. And it says to you, you are lost without the love of God in Jesus Christ. You are lost without it. He minces no words, pulls no punches. You are lost without the love of Jesus. But then that same word comes to you directly and says, through Jesus Christ, you, yes, you, you are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, you, yes, you, you are loved and you are chosen and you belong to him. Here's how God does things. God does things directly because he loves you. And he actually respects you and he cares for you so much that he's not going to mince words or pull punches or do an end around. He's going to come directly to you to deal with your issues, to speak to you, to love you, to save you directly. That's how God does things. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a recipient of that kind of direct love of God and activity of God. And you are tempted to be pulled into some kind of dynamic where we're not dealing directly with the issue at hand. We're not saying the thing that needs to be said. We're dancing around the issue but not addressing the issue. That is not of the Lord, period, because that's not how God works. He doesn't talk about the thing. He doesn't ignore the thing. He deals with the thing, with truth and with love, but he doesn't ignore it. He deals with it. What I love about Jesus in this moment is that he is the model of relational health. And he reminds us of how God 
deals with us and how we are freed to deal with each other in a similar way, directly. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking about some of the, like, the triangulated dynamics in your life, like at work or in your family, and you're thinking, boy, Matt, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but, but dealing with those things the way Jesus dealt with Mary and Martha, that in and of itself fills me with anxiety to draw a boundary line and be like, I'm not going to go there. This is your dysfunction, not mine. Or to say, you know what the real issue is? Is this, and you all need to deal with it. Like, I, like Jesus can do that. I can't do that. That feels like confrontation, and confrontation makes me sweat. And all I can say is, like, I am with you 100%. Like I say all the time, if you love confrontation, you are not a very loving person. If you don't get a little bit nervous about confrontation, you might be the problem. Confrontation should make you a little anxious, uh, a little queasy. And I'm right there with you. So, so for example, the other week, I'm coaching my son's second grade soccer team. Now, mind you, I know nothing about soccer. I've never played soccer. I've never watched soccer. The closest I've ever come to soccer is I have binged all the episodes of Ted Lasso. That's it. That's all I know. And yet, I am coaching my son's second grade soccer team. And one of the things I do know is that, is that each, each coach is supposed to stand on either side of the midfield line. So my team's over here, there's the midfield line, and then their team is over there. So their coach is supposed to stand over there and yell at his kids. And I'm supposed to stand over here and yell at my kids. I mean coach. <laughs> but what happened in our game is, is the coach from that team he wandered past the midfield line, and at one point, he's standing next to me, yelling at his kids. Well, I'm trying to yell at my kids, and it's confusing for all the kids. And I see our other two coaches looking at me like, you should do something. You should say something. You're the head coach. It's your job. You should say something. And I considered for a brief moment, I considered for a brief moment, gathering up all the remaining orange slices from the halftime snack <laughs> and, and bribing one of our players to go and say something to the coach, but then I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm teaching on triangulation in a couple weeks, and that's not a good role model. So I say to myself, I have to say something, I have to say something. And it seems mild, but it's a confrontation, and anytime there's confrontation, while I'm able to do it, my palms get sweaty and like my right knee starts to shake, like I'm a nervous Labrador or something. And so I walk the five feet over to this guy, and I lean in, and I, <laughs> I say to him, uh, uh, <clears throat> I, think, I think you're supposed to be over there. And you know what this guy says to me? He looks at me and he says, okay, and he walks right over that way. <laughs> I had made such a huge deal out of it. I felt like I'm like, I need a nap at this point. <laughs> it took so much effort just to say that. So all that to say, like, I feel you, like confrontation is the worst. But especially when it comes to relationships and anxiety and like breaking the triangle and some of this dysfunction, just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, it probably means that it's the leaning towards the right decision you have to make. Especially when it comes to dealing with relational anxiety. The only way, the only way to fix it is to go through it and to deal with it. You can't avoid your way out of relational anxiety. You have to name it and address it. In, in fact, you know, th this is what I would say. 
I would, I would say that when it comes to breaking a dysfunctional triangle, you know, two people should be dealing with each other, but they've drawn in that third, and maybe you're that third that they've drawn in. The way in which you break that triangle and you fight for health is by doing two things. And this comes from what we see in Genesis chapter 3 and what we see in Luke chapter 10 in Jesus with Mary and Martha, as well as any number of places that I could have uh, used today. What you do are two things to break the triangle and pursue health. The first is that you do what Jesus did. You confront the dysfunctional dynamic. You name it. You confront the dysfunctional dynamic. You name it. This is an issue between you and them, not me. I'm happy to help you with them, but I will not help you avoid them. This is an issue between you and them. You confront it. And then the other thing you do, because it's fueled by hidden hidden information, the other thing you do is that you fight for information to be shared with all parties. What you have just told to me, you need to tell them. Or what you have, you have shared with them, you, you have to come and share that with me. Because you and I are the ones that have an issue. Don't go talk to them. Say it to me. And sometimes it can be so dysfunctional. <clears throat> Someone is coming to you and they're refusing to deal with the person that they actually need to deal with. And I've had to do this. I've had to do this, is say to somebody, look, you're sharing some, some significant information of issues that you have with this person. They need to know that. And, and I'm not going to listen anymore unless you tell me that you're going to go to them. And if you refuse to go to them because this issue is so big and it's so volatile and you're telling me stuff that they really need to know, I'm telling you that if you don't go to them within the next 24 hours, I am going to them and I am sharing with them what you have shared with me. I will not carry this when it should be carried by you to them. I will not enable this dysfunction. The way you kill a dysfunctional triangle is by confronting the issue and by sharing information. That's how you crush it. And that's not easy. But that's what we see the Lord do. And it's not easy, but it is healthy. Now, let's admit that we're not always merely victims in this. We're not always the one who's triangulated against or the one who's triangulated in. Sometimes we are the triangulator. And I know this because some of y'all have tried to triangulate me into some of y'all's stuff. <laughs> Pastor, I really think that the Lord is putting it on your heart <laughs> to go and talk to somebody else. Like, really? Because the Lord told me you're crazy <laughs> and that you need to deal with them. We're all guilty of this at some point. But if, so here's what I would say. If you are tempted to, to avoid dealing with the person and the issue directly, as we're called to do, and you're tempted to, to, tr to triangulate somebody else in, I would encourage you to just remember that, that the Lord deals with us directly and that you are a member of the Lord's forgiven family, that you should deal with things directly. But I get that sometimes we feel powerless. I don't have it within me to go to this person and address this person. I don't have the emotional or mental or practical resources to deal with this person, to, to deal with my mom, to deal with my cousin, whoever it is directly. I get that. You feel powerless, and so that's why you try to pull in somebody else and, and avoid dealing with the issue at hand. I get that. But I would encourage you to remember this, that the only the only person that you can triangulate into any relationship in a healthy way 
that's not going to make things worse is Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. You can make a case that that's what prayer is. Prayer is the only healthy form of triangulation. I have an issue with you, but I take it to the Lord. And I I scratch that itch to fold in somebody else with him. And because you are a forgiven member of God's family, you're able to reach out to God. You're able to cry out to Jesus in the most unvarnished, unredeemed, ugly ways possible. And Jesus still looks at you and says, I still love you. You're still mine. You're a mess, but I love you. And I'm hearing all of this. He doesn't judge you for it. So like Jesus wants to hear how much you can't stand Larry at work. Jesus wants to hear just how difficult Linda is or how much of a pain Gary can be or how manipulative you think Christine is. He wants to hear all about it. And he wants to hear you say, I think you should get them to stop this or start that or or, or, or quit doing that other thing. Pour all of it out to him. And because you have faith in Jesus, know that you are covered in the mercy of Jesus and you're not judged for any of that stuff because God knows that he can handle what you pour on him about another person. But I can't. Your friend can't. He can. The only person that you can pour all this out to is him and not have it get really, really difficult. But understand this, understand this, that as you pour your heart out to Jesus about the difficulties between you and another person, that as you have your mind open to receive from Jesus, what you're often going to hear him say back to you is what he did with Martha. What you're going to hear from the Lord is this. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love you, you're mine, you're forgiven. You need to talk to them. I know, they're the worst. They're so frustrating. They're so dysfunctional. You, you need to talk to a counselor who can help you. You need to talk to your pastor who can assist you. But if they're doing their job right, they're going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. You need to deal with them directly. And that's so hard. But it's healthy. And you have to believe that that the difficulty of dealing with things in a healthy way ultimately outweighs the pain of dealing with them in a way that perpetuates dysfunction. I'll close with this. Um, The comedian George Burns once said that happiness is a loving and close-knit family that lives in another city. (laughs) The reason that makes us chuckle is because we know that very often the very best things in life, the people that we love, are also causes, sources of some of the greatest frustrations in life. And it gets even worse when something that should be dealt with between two people somehow gets a third person in it that just makes it more complicated and dysfunctional and rife for frustration and misunderstanding. 
Thankfully, we have a God who deals with us directly. He has dealt with your sin and your death and your eternity directly through his son, Jesus Christ. He speaks to you directly, truth and love through his word. He speaks to you directly. He deals with you directly. And he loves you enough to be direct with you and caring with you at the same time. My prayer and my hope is that we would feel empowered and emboldened to do the same. That when we are part of one of those dysfunctional triads of broken people, that we would, we would be bold enough to confront the real issue. You know, the real issue is this. That we would champion the sharing of information and that we would exercise the freedom we have to say, hey, I'm going to help this be healthy. Or if, if you don't want that, I'm going to step back. Because what I don't have to do is be part of the problem. And when you are the one who's tempted to pull in other people because you don't feel like you've got the power to deal with it directly, just know this. You can... You can triangulate in the one who can hear your cries and your frustrations and your anger and who in the end can actually give you some peace in the face of it and who can help you and empower you to rightly deal with it. Amen. Hey, friends, I'd ask you to stand. We're going to close out our time together this morning with a word of prayer. We're going to pray about the word that we just heard, that the Lord might help us to be healthy people, but that that might flow from this, this healthy relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. We're going to lift up uh, some of the needs of our congregation. We have some people who are heading into surgeries or who are dealing with, with health issues, who have some family stuff going on. Uh, we're also going to pray for some stuff that's going on in our country for the recovery from Hurricane Ian. And then, of course, anything else that you've got on your heart and your mind, we're going to lift up in this time. Friends, we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us your heart clearly in your son Jesus. Your promises are sweet to our ears and healing to our hearts. Help us to find comfort and rest in your word and to come to you with our struggles and to trust as you empower us to deal with others in a truly healthy and Christ-like way. Lord, in your mercy, our prayer. Gracious God, we pray for all those who are hurting this morning. We lift up to you Margaret, William, Diane. We, we give to you everyone who's been affected by Hurricane Ian. Keep them steadfast in your truth, in, in a knowledge of your love and your care for them. Grant them peace. Give them healing. Meet every need that they have, Father. Walk with them in the midst of these trials. Lord, in your mercy, in our prayer. Almighty Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship this morning. Be with us as we leave this place. Let the truth of your words sink into our hearts and give us a peace that surpasses human understanding. You are so good to us. Help us to see your goodness in the week ahead and to share some of your goodness with the people around us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Father, everything else that's on our hearts and minds, we lift up to you using the words that your son Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.